That's alchemy. That's what we're doing. When we talk about something we call the nine stages of alchemy, it's a practice that we do with Chinese medicine. We're doing treatments to do the nine stages of alchemy. What we're doing is we're cultivating that idea. The whole point of the first stage of alchemy is to open that conversation up between your little shen and your big shen. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I've got a pal who's a darn good acupuncturist, and I suspect that's the case because he's a keen observer of human nature, and he follows the Tao in the way that people who live close to the earth, folks that hunt, fish, work with people who work with their hands and who have faith and leave you some room for yours as well, He taught me something about empathy recently, and it's so simple, I'm not sure how I missed it myself, other than I like to think my way through things, and my buddy, he's smart, and he's got an emotional intelligence that I could use a bit of cultivation with. We were talking about those patients who have a really different way of looking at the world than we do, and as you know, us humans, when we get wound up, We can go on and on. Sometimes you need to pay out a little line and let people run with the thing that's got them all fired up. For sure, you don't want to point to the places where you think they're wrong, especially if the two of you don't see eye to eye on the issue. And even if you do, commiserating with your patients isn't all that helpful. That's what their friends are for. My buddy, when folks are on a tirade, He looks them in the eye and gives them a not-too-exuberant, but certainly heartfelt, I know. It works magic, and the magic comes from the patient being seen and being heard. There are times we get ourselves into a perseverant spiral of emotion. I know I've been there. It's a bit like hitting a patch of glazed ice on a frozen Midwest night. The way out of it is completely counterintuitive. You need to turn into the slide, not away from it. So too a strong emotion, especially when it's fueled by belief and righteousness. I know. It seems to help. For entirely too long, I thought being empathetic meant that I could share a person's feelings. And honestly, there are some folks, I don't want to be anywhere near what they're feeling, at least not on my insides. But I'm happy to sit with them as they have the experience that they're having. I don't need to feel what they're feeling, but it helps if I have the capacity to understand that's where they are and not be in too much of a hurry to change anything about it either. Feelings, they come and go like the weather. Best not to get too graspy with them. Let them simmer. Or maybe they just need to blow themselves out. My patient's feelings really are none of my business other than I need to see it as part of my patient's landscape and have some space for it, like I do for their ideas, beliefs, the troubles and their hopes. Sometimes people cry in my clinic. I suspect they do in yours as well. I just hand them a tissue and I tell them, you know, the great thing about acupuncture is you get to bring all of you here, which is kind of another way to say, I know, which really means I see you, and I'm still here. It goes a long way. Maybe try it in your clinic the next time one of your patients who you 
might actually be at odds with if you'd met under different circumstances is going on about something, especially if you feel the urge to correct them or point out another perspective. Start with, I know. See what happens. We are in the business of change. It's the tacit agreement of medicine that something troublesome is going to undergo some kind of transformation. The trouble a patient slept through the door, it's going to be different. I'm not sure where the idea came from that medicine can provide a change without some sort of commensurate work on the part of the patient. Perhaps it's our modern way of imagining the body as a machine, and with machines, it's simply a matter of running the right diagnostics and swapping out the malfunctioning part. But we're biological, not mechanical. What's more, our mind and emotions are inextricably entangled with the physiology. Saying mind-body connection doesn't even begin to get at the complexity of it all. In this conversation with Lita Herman, we begin a discussion on alchemy as a way of adopting a mindset that helps to guide us in our clinical work. We'll be talking about the process of change, touch on the dynamics of transformation, and discuss the how of working with ghost points. All of this and more in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. 
and tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Lita Herman, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Happy to have you here. Another podcaster. I'm talking to another podcaster. Isn't that great? It's fun. It's really fun. It's a joy to be doing your podcast, but in general, I love doing podcasting. Whatever got you started on podcasting? Like, like what was the thing that suddenly in your mind you were like, oh, maybe a podcast? That's a good question. This was like five years ago. So I have to think back, but my business partner, Jay McElroy, she got wind of it, uh, you know, years before that and was kind of working on me. Lita, you should do a podcast. You should do a podcast. And I didn't really understand it. I don't think I was listening at that point. It was still kind of new and a little bit five years ago, a little bit newish. Newish. Yeah. Like it was out there. And we jumped in in 2018 and we tried it and it was hard. Like we didn't have the tech down. We didn't have a lot of things, but we had a lot of fun. And so we laughed a lot. We entertained ourselves. And as a result, I think we've entertained hopefully other people. And we've, we really liked the idea of taking it out more towards to people around the world who aren't necessarily Chinese medicine practitioners. That was really fun. Mm. So you talk both to practitioners, but you, okay, so how do you split that difference, so to speak? Well, we assume that everyone sometimes needs to get back to the basics. So I think a lot of Chinese medicine practitioners listen to our podcast, but it's like we're reframing things constantly in the context of their clients as well. So people out there are listening to, and we've picked a topic that we're, is really near and dear to our hearts, which is alchemy. And we called the podcast Inspired Action because we love the concept of Wu Wei. And instead of calling it non-action or non-doing, which a lot of people go, what's that mean? That's really weird. Yeah, that would be confusing. It's confusing anyway. What do you mean not doing? 
it's a really confusing concept. So, and so we decided to call it inspired action. And once we had that theme, we said, okay, well, if this is for the entire general public, not just for Chinese medicine practitioners, what does everyone need to know? And the truth is we all need to know, we all need to kind of look at it from a very basic level. And so we just started building slowly on it. And it's, you know, every year we just keep adding more and more of the concepts behind it, which is uh, Wu Wei, in case people don't know that idea that you could walk through life completely inspired. I always say, what if every footstep you took, the footprint is in front of you to put your foot in and you're just stepping into that footprint. And that's the idea of inspired action. Like I'm inspired and there's the way. The way is right there in front of me. It's almost the the translation of the word way in Wu Wei. It's like the way. It's nice that they're a little similar. Yeah. Tao is like a path or a way. Exactly. The footprint is already there. That's interesting. I would say I've had this happen to me a handful of times in my life where someone has said something. I did not even make a decision. It was just like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. Exactly. Right. And this other part of my mind is going, you're what? But there's been a few times the footprint's been there, but it's only been a handful. You're saying this can happen more often. Yes. And in alchemy, we cultivate that. So we talk a lot about cultivation. Like what if you thought of yourself as a garden and it's totally cool and acceptable to be a wild garden full of beautiful weeds, just a, a mesh of tons of stuff and not cultivated like an English garden. And that's okay. But let's say that you like to think of maybe a way you're inspired to cultivate yourself. And as you start to cultivate yourself, we would call that alchemy. We would say that, okay, like I can just kind of walk willy nilly, whatever path, anything goes in my life, you know, free willing. Or I can kind of bring in that inspiration in a way that now I'm cultivating myself like a garden into something more than who I am naturally, even though you are naturally those things. Mm, I don't know. I have had parts of my life where I've done it willy-nilly. Hey, here's an idea and just try this, just try that without a ton of forethought. Sometimes it's worked out. Sometimes mm, not so great. You end up You end up cultivated, but more like mowed down. So there is something, I think, about that naturalness, but at the same time, willy-nilly hasn't, at least for me, it hasn't been so helpful. Right. So if you think about this idea of the Shen, the spirit kind of coming in at the beginning of your lifetime, then we would call that the piece of the Shen that you're borrowing from the divine for your lifetime to animate you is that Shen. And then that big Shen resides in the brain. And then the little Shen is the one that resides in your heart and kind of is the one that has to navigate choices and destiny and free will and destiny and (laughs) what's what and make those decisions as we go along. And so if you think about that individualness of the heart versus sort of the collective consciousness of what the mind can tap into 
through the big Shen, meaning the big Shen is our collective spirit and the little Shen is just that individual you. In alchemy, what we're doing is really holding that heart and allowing you to heal a lot of heart pain and then again, cultivate what you're trying to do, which is potentially getting more to that Wu Wei inspired action state. And then some higher level alchemy stuff is really out there, like morphing and flying and, and being invisible and immortality even. So, you know, the alchemists had a lot of theories about some very unusual ways of being. Okay. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to start with, you just said the big Shen is in the brain. Yes. So the idea is that the Big Shen is our piece of the divine that comes in as we are maybe gestating or maybe even at the moment of conception. I don't think there's a, a definite on that, on how it's just obviously a cosmological theory, but there's a big bang and we have an embryo, right? And we we kind of come into some level of animation. And so that, that, what animates us? I mean, modern science still doesn't really know what she is. It doesn't know what animates us. And the Chinese have been like, it's the Shen for, you know, thousands of years. And so the idea that the Shen is coming in and that we break that Shen into five pieces, there's the Hen, the, the Shen, the Hun, the Po, the Yi, and the Shi, right? So and for those of you who don't know this, the spirit names, there's a spirit for each organ, you know, each element, let's say. There's a spirit for each element. But when they say the Shen, the Hun, the Po, the Yi, and the Zhur, the Shen, that Shen is your little Shen, the one that lives in your heart. And then the Hun is the spirit that lives in the liver. The Po is the spirit that lives in the lungs etc. I don't know if you want me to keep going. Yeah, yeah. I, I think our listen our, our listeners caught into that. Yes. You know, it's mostly Chinese medicine practitioners because I don't want to get too basic here. So but in the in the brain, the idea is that, you know, through do 20, we can at night, we can astral travel, for example. So what happens? Why is liver time at night? Well liver time is at night because at nighttime we need to you know, when we say we're going to sleep on it, we're going to sleep on it because the liver has to do its job through the hun. The hun can astral travel at night. It can go out and it can survey the battlefield. So like the general, the general being the liver, right? The hun is going to go out now at night, survey the battlefield, look at all the factors and make a decision. That's why we say, hey, I can't decide right now. I'm going to sleep on it. And then we go sleep on it. And then the hun is now, you know, going to make that decision in the middle of the night. We wake up, we know what to do. So that, so I digress, but that's. So the liver talks to the uh, gallbladder, the gallbladder makes a decision and, uh, and the heart gets informed and off we go. So you're saying that the liver is like a drone that goes out at night and goes up <laughs> using new technology. Exactly. A drone. I love it. Well, I mean, it, it's kind of the sense. So it flies up, gives you uh, an aerial view. Yeah. And that aerial view, that larger view, that is very much a liver function, right? Vision, for one, being able to plan. How do you know? Well, you got you got to see the landscape of what you're in. Just a quick little aside here. 
a year or two ago, we went to this place called Crystal Bridges. It's a museum down in Arkansas, Bentonville, Arkansas, a galactic international, or I should say intergalactic headquarters of Walmart. They've got an amazing, an amazing museum of American art. Walmart money has bought this fantastic art collection. It's worth seeing. Anyway, when we were there, we also went to the Walmart Museum. I know a lot of people are here listening to this like, Walmart, we hate them. But listen to this. Sam Walton was very different than the people that run Walmart today. And one of the things that Sam Walton would do, this fits in, I I guarantee I'm going to tie this in. He had a small pilot's license and he had an airplane. He would like fly around. And one of the things he'd do is like fly over his competitor's and looking like count the cars in their parking lot versus the cars in his parking lot. And it was one of the ways that he'd make decisions on like where to put billboards or how to, you know, how to do whatever he did. So he had to have been wood, huh? <laughs> he would be the wood element, I'm guessing. Well, he had a he had a strong wood aspect. Yes. Right? He had a strong earth aspect. He drove an old broken down four by four Ford truck that he used for hunting. So really interesting character. Anyway. Um, I digress, but but that point about being able to get that overall view, yeah, that really does fit in with the etheric aspect of of the Hun and uh, how that connects then with the the organ. And I brought that up in context of the little Shen that is in the heart versus the big Shen that is like our, you know, when we understand that there is a collective unconscious or consciousness, I guess, collective consciousness, that's that big Shen access. Like that's where we, it's that hundredth monkey idea where something can be happening in one place and simultaneously in another place at the same time, like an invention, a new way of being. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden, everybody's got a podcast. Exactly. That's the big Shen at work. And we don't really understand that. That's way beyond our pay grade. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> that's definitely, you know, the, the Tao that can't be named kind of stuff that, you know, we're, we're not accessing that level yet. We are influenced by it. And that would be the big Shen. We are influenced. Now, what are your thoughts on getting little Shen and big Shen? on speaking terms, conversational terms. There you go. That's alchemy. That's what we're doing. When we talk about something we call the nine stages of alchemy, it's a practice that we do with Chinese medicine. We're doing treatments to do the nine stages of alchemy. What we're doing is we're cultivating that idea. So for example, in the first stage of alchemy, the whole point of the first stage of alchemy is to open that conversation up between your little shen and your big shen. And so we say that the last point of the first stage of alchemy, which is kidney 23, is that idea of the seal being lifted off that is sort of separating you from that big shen. So we, we're, we're taking that seal and we're saying, all right, let's open that dialogue. But there's a lot of preparation before you get to that step of stage one. First, you have to deal with fear. There's no point in having that conversation with the big Shen. If you're terrified, you really, if life is terrifying you, that's the first step. So the first step in alchemy is what we call enter the mystery gate, entering the mystery gate. And as you might guess what point that would be, it's kidney 21, right? The mystery gate. The idea is the pylorus gate, but it's the mystery gate. It's the one that's like this. We don't know what's beyond the veil. We just don't know. And does that 
make us terrified. Like if I, if I said to you today, Michael, okay, you're going to walk through a dark tunnel. And as you walk through, how are you going to take the next footstep? Are you going to be like, oh, what kind of creepy crawlies and monsters are in my dark tunnel? And then just want to, you know, turn around and hightail it out of there. Or do you want to like go, I'm okay. I, I trust, trust. I always say trust with a capital T. I trust that I'm safe. And even if there's monsters and creepy crawlies and ghosts and goblins in there, I'm going to still walk forward because I know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's something more. There's something more. And I want to know what that is. I get that. But for sure, there can be a fear of the dark. And, and beyond that, like what's, it's not, <laughs> remember someone saying, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm just afraid of what's in it. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's exactly it. And we sometimes even practice walking in the dark for real, like go outside and pick a place that where there's not a big cliff <laughs> and that it's relatively safe and just turn your flashlight off, turn your iPhone off, turn, turn it all off and just try walking. And, and if you're scared, that's okay. No judgment, like totally okay. And then the idea is, you know, there's techniques, like what can we do to assuage the fear? Yes, it's a great question. What can we do? Well, we've, we've tried a lot of different things, but one thing is to imagine someone you trust holding your hand, like your mom or some people's mom isn't great. So that's not a good helper. <laughs> Sometimes we say to imagine there's a little like Buddha in you inside your chest and you're just like allowing that Buddha to light the way for you. And so you just kind of imagine this inner light starts to shine. And then it, and that, that helps a lot of people, a lot of people, they start to just feel again, sort of a connection with their little Shen, because that's where the Shen resides and they're accessing it just through that visualization. And they begin to feel like, Oh yeah, I can, I can do this. I can. So when we say you're going to go in your dark tunnel, that's you trying to, for the first time, maybe say, I'm willing to step into my unknown. Mm. What's my unknown? And is it scary? Or what are my fears? You probably, at least when I think for myself, unknown, that, that's hard to conceptualize. What my fears are? Oh yeah, I can, I can get a pretty quick ping on that. Yeah. And I have to say, some people aren't ready to do alchemy and we do things like the ghost points first, because if there's just an overwhelming amount of fear and trauma, then this isn't a good exercise for someone like that. That's just not fair. Like, let's first just work on that. And that's where Sun Tzu Miao's ghost points come in or other treatments like Worsley's IDs and EDs treatments are good, but like whatever that new person's bringing to the table, sometimes the nine stages of alchemy is not the place to start. I mean, change is threatening. I'm in such a tiny box of no change because it's so scary. So I just wanted to say that not everyone is going to just be like, yeah, let's go do some alchemy. And we have to kind of take it case by case. Yeah. When I think of alchemy, I think of a younger version of myself that thought that was pretty cool. And then you go a few years and you find out transformation is not child's play. No. And 
and you're actually, if you're asking for trans, at least in my life, if I'm asking for transformation and I get it, I'm opening up a hurt locker. Yeah. Be careful what you ask for, right? <laughs> careful what you ask for. Exactly. And where I used to think transformation was so cool, like, oh, cool, I can transform this. It's like, yeah, well, not as easy as you think, for one. And yeah, you talk about that dark tunnel, you talk about what might be in there. Transformation is not child's play. No. And that's why I love, love, love the ghost points, because the things that hold someone back from transformation are often the skeletons in the closet, the things that have bit us before in the butt, you know, like that we, we've had a lot of experiences. And the idea is that we create a fortress. We start to create this, these little lookout towers on top of the fortress. So we, we armor against those bad things happening again. And everyone has it. I say, if you've been on the planet for 20 years and you had a great childhood, I mean, eventually shit's going to happen, right? I don't know if I can say that, but stuff is going to happen, right? So in terms of like stuff happens, then we begin to build the armor. I'm never, ever, ever going to let that happen again, which is smart, right? As an adult, that threatened me, maybe even to the point of feeling like there was some level of death, you know, impending death or emotional death or whatever kind of like major thing I saw. So I, I put my hand up to the universe and I say, no, never again. So what, what do I have to do to live that? Now I need a lookout tower. I need to be constantly vigilantly looking out for any potential thing that's like that. And obviously there's degrees of this, but modern day, you know, psychology calls PTSD this very thing. Obviously it can be very extreme or pretty much all of us have some level of PTSD. We have some level of, uh-uh, not doing that. I remember that. And when it happened back then, it was really, really, really bad. Not going to do it. So as we begin to say, wait, is it safe? for me to begin to look at why this vigilance is happening? Is it safe for me to open up that Pandora's box of why that was so painful? And that's what we call the cauldron. So if you're going to do alchemy, you have to build a safe container for yourself. And so that's really true what you said, Michael. So the first step, again, there's a lot of holding in the beginning, a lot of like real loving kindness to oneself. And that's like a lot of the beginning of alchemy is how can I build that cauldron where I can throw in some of these painful experiences and start to look at it and then allow the chemistry of alchemy to begin to break them apart and start to see, hey, just because that thing happened when I was 10, it's probably never going to happen again. I was bullied as a kid. Do I have to go through my life constantly worried about being bullied? No, like I, but I had to heal that. That was a lot of my own alchemy. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well integrated diagnostic theoretical and practical skill. 
You'll be familiar with Dumai, the Governor Channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Sure. Well, and you also have to learn something about boundaries, holding boundaries and recognizing dangers. And that is useful stuff. Yes. So I'm, I'm not suggesting bullying is a good idea, but look, uh, the world is going to show you people that are, do not have your best interest in mind. Absolutely. It's really helpful to know who they are. Absolutely. And so there is a, a point in alchemy a little further down the road once someone's starting to open up this dialogue and get it moving where there's a phrase we use, and I call it a very tall order, just from what you said. And that is this phrase, the best protection is no protection. And that's like, no way. Like a lot of people are like, uh-uh, can't, can't accept that thought. Now here's the reason. The best protection's no protection is because you're so good in yourself that even that bully out there who's going to come at you with all that crap you can just laugh or you can be like the Tai Chi master and like let the bullets just fly right by or the punches fly right by. And, and it's like you, you can be that level of Tai Chi mastery where you can literally let them fall on their face and laugh, you know, <laughs> I mean, because they threw that punch so hard and you just dodged it because you're so good in yourself. And that's a really tall order. So that's not like the beginning of alchemy, but that's what we're headed to. That's what we're looking for. And that's only the second stage of alchemy. So there's a lot more after that. There's nine stages. Well, that's in some ways, there's part of your uwe. Looking to protect ourselves, that's <laughs> that's not uwe. That's having an idea about what you need to do. It, you know, it's very much a doing. The protection is a doing. Exactly. Because the the monkey mind is trying to always protect you and to make friends with that part of your brain that's like really good. Like I always say, like, we got to make friends with fear. It's awesome. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to ask you about monkey mind. Yeah. Because I hear this phrase all the time. And I think it's really unfair to monkeys. Good point. No, I do. I think it's really unfair to monkeys. We, you know, we look at monkeys in the way they behave. All right, fine, fair enough. I don't know if monkeys have the same self-reflective capacity that humans have. And so this thing that we call monkey mind, I think it's really, really unfair. And it's actually letting us off the hook in a way. Oh, yeah, those monkeys. I think it's a human mind. This thing that you're, that you're describing, I think it's human mind. It's not monkey mind. That is a really good point. Just my own persnickety perspective on it. Yes. I love that because actually what, what we're trying to cultivate in alchemy is that that human mind is important and it really has a place 
it's the one that looks both ways when you're about to cross a road and not get hit by a bus. God, I love it. That's so helpful. It's the one that looks both ways so you don't get hit by a bus. Right. And what we don't want it to do is not let you cross the road. I actually had a client who couldn't cross the road, literally, at all. And so why? You know, she got hit by a car in a crosswalk. I mean, it's that simple, right? So we had to do the ghost points to undo and unravel that pain, that that intense pain that she experienced, which was became huge PTSD that impacted every aspect of her life. Yeah. Well, you got hit by a car in a crosswalk. I guess that means you have to give up crossing the street, but man, that's going to limit you, isn't it? In a big way. So when I say monkey mind, and I agree with the strange name, what I'm saying is human mind can be just a friend. It's, it's part of us. It's something we need to really value and understand. It's, it's keeping us safe. But it also can extend to incredible anxiety and overthinking that is beyond its capacity to keep us safe and now is shutting down inspired action. Because if we are like, we got to cross the road and and the mind is saying, no way, you can't cross the road, there's no inspired action. Right. There's just limitation. Yeah. I love the idea that there's both an opening with the mind and there's a, let's make sure that we can do this. We have the capacity. We can be safe. Part of what I hear, let's continue with the metaphor of the person who can't cross the road, is they've lost some capacity. And, and now they've built up some walls that keep them from getting access to that capacity. So I think what I hear you saying is that, that ghost points can be useful in removing some blockages to, I'm going to call it a greater level of capacity of mind. Absolutely. That's exactly what the ghost points are for. So how do you use those? Yeah. So I do the ghost points a lot. People come from all over the world to get them done in person. They don't translate well to virtual. I do a lot of alchemy virtually, but I really think that they are something you have to do in person. You can do them virtually. I do a lot of distance treatments, but it, there's nothing that will replace that really one-on-one face-to-face when you're talking about trauma. And so a lot of people are coming to do that work. And a lot of uh, people have learned the ghost points. It's very well known. I mean, everyone knows what they are. And uh, But it's really hard to cultivate them. So you can stick a needle in uh, large intestine 11, but it's not a ghost point unless you know how to cultivate that. And so what I've cultivated personally is instead of using them one at a time, Or a lot of people use them two or three at a time. Like in an hour session, you could potentially do like three ghost points. Um, Instead of doing that, I look at the whole person and recognize that an hour is too little time to really tackle something like I was hit by a car in a crosswalk. It's too little time. It's not fair to the person to open that Pandora's box and then go, Oh, time's up. Next person. Yeah. So there's a there's a process here, and uh, and time is a piece of it. Yeah, a huge piece. 
So what I do is I do a whole day treatment. I don't actually put a time on it. I put aside the whole day. I tell people four to six hours. That probably seems really long to most practitioners, like completely outrageous, right? But when, when you're in that bubble, a lot of, almost all the clients say, I thought two or three hours went by. And then at the end, they often say, I've had psychotherapists tell me, I've never once told my whole story in one go. And that alone was healing. That's the psychotherapy world too, right? An hour session, 50 minutes, done. So they, even though they're psychotherapists, they never told the whole story to anyone in one sitting. It's hard to tell the whole story in one sitting, I suspect. I mean, if it's a story that's big enough to keep you from doing something important in your life. So is this partly needling? Is this partly talking? Is this journaling? I mean, what all, what all goes into this? Right. So with the ghost points, I believe the heart needs to speak. And so one of the things that I'm cultivating is to allow that person to basically in, have their own inspiration. I, I'm not doing a treatment. I'm facilitating a treatment. So I'm allowing whatever needs to happen. So let's say we start with do 26, which is the first point in Sensei Mao's order. So if we do do 26, that is the, each one, each point name starts with the word ghost, which indicates that it's not middle of man. It's not the do 26, you know, it's ghost. I like to call it ghost door, but it's called ghost palace. And the idea is it's the door to your palace because think of it, it's where where air comes in, food comes in. It's, it's how we interface with the world. So that may be why the name middle man, but I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. It's, you have to kind of think of it as not the do 26, you know, it's a completely different point every time you work with these points. And so over the years, I've been doing this for 15 years of my 20 plus year practice. I've been practicing this way. As I do that point, I just first open the question to the universe, what's going to happen as I start this point? And it's a different technique. It's a vibrational technique. It's not lifting and thrusting. It's not circular needling. And you can use a needle. I I like to use a non-needling needle action, which is I use my fingers as the needles. And that's also just my trajectory in my training, I did not start as an acupuncturist. I started as a plant spirit medicine practitioner and then studied very intensively with the Worsley tradition through acupuncture. And then I've come to this place of, of just using my hands because the power for me of doing this point in this alchemical way is so much more than having the separation of an instrument where I'm the instrument, I'm the needle. So that's the method. And then when I put my finger on the point and I open that question to the universe, it's like, okay, what needs to happen? I might have a chatterbox on the table who's going to tell me everything, a fire person or you know, uh, maybe an earth person, and they're just talking the whole time. I may have someone really quiet you know, who's just kind of being with cosmic chi, like a metal person or maybe a water person. or you know. So I might have these different people there and the question is, what is what needs to happen here? So a lot of times I might tell them, oh, this point is about the door to you. How do you interface with the world? And just asking that very benign question, which I don't do by default, only if it's necessary. I kind of 
go with my inspired action, my way. If I ask that question, that often opens the door for them to start to talk. Well, this happened to me and that happened to me. And then I say, well, what, what's changed since you were a little kid? If you remember a time, not everyone does, but if you remember a time when things were good, when you were happy, when you were yourself, when you were your authentic self, if you remember that time, when did it change? What changed it? And what is that person versus the person lying on the table today? And so we start having this long conversation. We could spend an hour on that point. Now, do you have your hand on the point the whole time? Yes. Oh my goodness. So glad I'm an acupuncturist. You could do it with a needle, but when I was studying, I always studied side by side with acupuncturists and they still had their hand on the needle the whole time. Oh, did they? Okay. It's a different kind of work. It's real presence. It's such a level of presence. Really, that's the gift of alchemical Chinese medicine is your presence. It's definitely not stick the needles in and leave the room at all. At the very least, it would be stick the needles in and continue to be there and talk with the person. You could try that. I mean, that might be sufficient. But having your hands on the point, whether it's through the needle, you know, holding the needle like a Toyahari technique is also possible. And then the insertion would be when the opening comes, when the aha moment comes, when they get it, then the needle slips in. So that is how I learned it as a, from a needling point of view, you could try inserting it and then just be with the needle, you know, so it's really going to vary per person, but all of my students who are acupuncturists, my students, I say, go do it with needles, try it out. And they all come back and say, I, I really like using my hands. So they've learned a whole new way of working because of this work where they're using their, their fingers as needles. I've seen this myself in clinics sometimes. I'll be probing points to see if they'll be helpful, and I'll just press on the point. So, and some points, like if I'm working with someone's shoulders, and their shoulder frees right up. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the point. I'll go work with it with a needle. It's like, mm, hand work better. It's not always, but but often, often enough. What I hear you saying with these ghost points is that, I mean, like water. Let's take water for an example. Water can be... It can have different characteristics depending on the situation. It can be a vapor, it can be a fluid, it can be a solid, depending on the situation. And you deal with water in different ways depending on that situation. So it sounds like these ghost points are a bit similar. They, depending on the situation, they have different characteristics. Absolutely. You really can't think of them as the same point. Like if you move on to, let's see, what would be a good point to talk about? Large intestine 11. Give me large intestine 11 because it's a point that I think many of us use. If you're not using it every day. You should. <laughs> well, I'd just be surprised given the state of digestion and just the way things are in the world. Exactly. I know. I love large intestine 11 for it's what we all know it to be and not as a ghost point. I use it all the time. So the difference is large intestine 11 is called ghost official and ghost official it took me probably 10 years to cultivate that point. When you say cultivate, when you say cultivate, what does that mean? Well, I didn't have a teacher like I am. 
I did have a wonderful teacher, um, Nikki Bilton, back in the day. And then Jeffrey Yuan has been my teacher for many, many years since 2004. So I have wonderful teachers, right? But there was a level where I think, you know, Jeffrey Yuan teaches you theory. And then I take it into the clinic and practice it. And that practice informs me more than a lecture could ever inform me. Mm -hmm. So as I started to work with Ghost Official, I knew some things about it. I knew that, you know, official, okay, first of all, it's a metal element point, right? So that makes a lot of sense because when we think about the metal element, we think of the prime minister. And we also think of maybe a judge sitting on a bench, right? A judgmental, not judgmentalness, but a the ability to say what the scales are showing us in law. Is it guilty or is it innocent? Well, there, there's such a thing as good judgment and bad judgment. You know, everyone's saying, don't be so judgmental. It's like, well, how about being effectively judgmental? Well, what I like to say, there's no judgment in what the scales are showing you. In other words, there's no emotion attached to that. It either is guilty or innocent. So it's either bad or good. It's either black or white. It's, it's very binary, but there's no judgment. There's no like big emotional to do. A wood person would have a big emotional <laughs> outburst about which one it is. And metal would be like, that's what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. So, so there's the is what it is. And then there's the emotion that might get attached to that. You're talking about the capacity to perceive what is, make a judgment free of emotion, ideology, how it should be, what the latest whatever says is about something. Yeah. So the role of judge in a courtroom versus the lawyers that are arguing the cases, the lawyers arguing the cases would be the wood element, ideally, because their passion and they can argue a case and they can give a lot of like really deep emotional feelings about why this person's innocent or why this person's guilty or, or that we should have compassion for the person, even though they're guilty because blah, 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 blah. And the metal person, the judge sitting on the bench, all they are doing is saying, okay, the jury said guilty or not. And this is the punishment but not in an emotional way. Like this is the punishment. The, the less emotional that judge can be, the better job they're going to do. So if we call large intestine 11 ghost official, it took me a long time to realize what that meant. And what that meant was who is running your life? Who is the official of your life? In other words, what rules are you living by? Are you living by your authentic rules of who you truly are and need to be in the world? Or have you taken on others' rules, even like through a, a level of oppression? Because we're talking ghost points here, right? So if we're talking ghost points, there's trauma. There's something really negative in a person's life usually once you start to bring the, the ghost points in. So we're trying to release levels of oppression or levels of blocked will where you weren't able to live by your own rules. I have a patient, this was years ago, but I often think about this encounter. Can't remember everything about the treatment, but what I remember is this. She said, yeah, I need to fire my board of directors and get a new one. And she wasn't talking about anything on the outside. Right, that's great. Oh my God, that's so perfect. Isn't it? 
That is ghost official. Okay, that's ghost official. I'm firing that board of directors. I need a new board of directors. Absolutely. That is it. You nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now I understand. It's funny. It's one of those things. This was years ago. And and I often will think about that. There was, there was something very lively about the feeling in the room when she said that. And I thought, yep, that's right. You know, and I probably need to, and I need to fire some of mine too. Yeah. And it's amazing when I do this point with people, I often will ask them if it's appropriate again, I just want you to know nothing is set in stone in any of these treatments. But if, if I'm inspired to ask, I will ask them, well, what rules do you want to live by? What about just one rule? What would that be? And for some people, that is a completely foreign concept. What? I get to make a rule for myself? You know, one woman told me she made a rule when she was in her early 20s that she was never going to lie. And she lived that her whole life. Fantastic. Wonderful. You know, ghost official wasn't such a big deal for her. But for another person, there are no rules of their own. None. They can't think of one. So they have a pretty intense board of directors, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're oppressed by everything at that point. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously there's different layers and levels and complexities to these points. I mean, I'm just giving you one sort of vantage point of that one, but it comes out a lot of different ways. A lot of people who've had very, you know, domineering parents can have a lot of issues with this point. And also Ghost Road, Bladder 62. Ghost Road is one of those points that is similar to large intestine 11 in that it's, it's asking, what are your detours? What has blocked you on your road or taking you on the wrong path? And we all kind of know that we're supposed to be headed this way. I mean, most of us do, not all of us, but some of us know, hey, this is my trajectory and somehow I'm way over here. What happened? How did I get here? This wasn't meant to be. What's going on? Makes me think of that famous Talking head song. Which one? Oh, I can't remember the title of it, but there's this one refrain, well, how did I get here? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is this my beautiful house? Is this Is this my beautiful house? Right. Is this my Is this my beautiful wife? <laughs> yes. Exactly. It is totally that song. And then they talk about the water. So there we go with uh, with the bladder. So it's uh it's kind of a theme song for that point. Yes. And so I also bring in, that's a really good point, like the elements. I bring a lot of elemental talk into these treatments and we use a little bit different diagnosis than a lot of other five element practitioners do, where we, we look more at the energy of the person walking through time and space. We try not to use CSOE as much because CSOE changes a lot, especially with people who are in trauma states. It really messes with your CSOE. So I know five element acupuncture schools, CSOE rules, color, sound, odor, and emotion. So for, for folks that don't know what that is, because they haven't studied the Worsley tradition, what are we talking about? It's color, sound, odor, and emotion. Worsley was all about that. So, so the color of the face, the, um, the odor, you know, the, the sound of the voice, these are all factors. They're not to be ignored. But in addition to that, when you're working with someone who comes in in a trauma state, 
they might be white as a ghost, right? Really, you might think they're metal because anyone who's more matte, you know, obviously depending on skin tone, it's going to be different, but they have more of this matte look that can be like no color in the face and a lighter skin tone. Then that person is often diagnosed as metal. However, if they're in a trauma state, we believe that that's usually the third element in what we call their stack up. So if you're, let's say, wood first and then fire second and metal third and something horrible's happened, you're going to be in that third element state and you're going to appear metal. You may even have a weeping voice because you're scared and you're maybe in grief. Are you stuck in time or stuck in space or both? Well, in terms of PTSD kind of reaction, yeah, you're definitely stuck in time. Stuck in time. And and it's going to affect how you present in the clinic. And so what will happen, so why am I using the five elements at all in these treatments? I want to get back to the authentic energetic makeup of that person. And in alchemy, eventually they're going to go beyond their own elemental sort of energetic limitations and be all five elements. But to do that, they first need to know themselves. They need to know what that authentic energetic is. So if they're naturally social, naturally smiling, they have light in their eyes, that's who they were when they were five. But then when that thing happened when they were six, that shut them down. And ever since then, they've been like, like just hiding from the world, well, then maybe fire's their true elemental type and they've been trying to be metal their whole lives. And that can happen. Or maybe they have a different response and they're red-faced and angry. They've become wood as a response to the, to the trauma. So depending on, on the, so the, uh, let me see if I have this, whatever you call up as your response to that trauma, we're going to pull up one of those five, because that's kind of the way we're constellated as humans, whichever one of those we use as our way of getting through it. Now we're kind of stuck with that. We keep orbiting around it. We look like that. Yes. But it's, it's, that's actually false. Yes. And it takes a little bit of time to understand with that person who the authentic person is and who this person, uh, some people call them acquired elements. They acquired it through life experiences or even just a parent saying, don't be that, don't be that, be like me, be like me over and over and over through childhood. So they end up growing up being someone they're not completely someone they're not. And that we've seen that many times. So we actually analyze them walking. We get them to walk in a long hallway. We get them to walk slow and then we get them to walk fast. And the evaluation we're doing is, do they bounce? That would be fire. Do they march? That would be wood. You know, so we're going through all the elements and we're looking at what is the predominant, like, energetic and then is that clashing with what they're presenting now how does the fast and slow how's that helpful do they march different or do they move differently fast and slow and does one mean one thing and one thing mean another the fast and slow is a way to take a general assessment because a lot of people are nervous when you're watching them walk 
And so if you tell them, hey, just walk your normal walk, they'll be all like nervous and it won't be their normal walk. But then I say walk fast and they can't help but start doing their thing. And then they also calm down a little bit and they forget that they're nervous. And then we can watch them walk slow again, maybe get a better reading on that one. But generally speaking, between the two, we can get a nice visual. That's very clever. Just asking them a little bit differently. So so they're not trying to show the thing that they're trying to show or hide the thing they're trying to hide. I've got a friend who will often ask patients in clinic, not about like, oh, are you shy or retiring or are you meticulous or whatever? What he'll say is, uh, would the people that know you well say that you're like X, Y, Z, right? Just move it away from their sense. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these are, that's a great question for when we're doing ghost points, because as we're starting to talk about like one, each ghost point has a theme and we're just talking about that theme for a while. So maybe 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, maybe even five minutes. It's an easy one. We did Ghost Official. Let's say it was Ghost Market, REN24, my favorite point. I just love this point because I think all acupuncturists need this point. Like go home and do it for yourself because as a ghost point, it's about how do you speak about yourself in the world? What is your market story? And we we hate, <laughs> I think healers hate marketing themselves. It's It just feels wrong, right? But here's the deal. You have a gift. And there are people in the world who need it. You know, there's billions of people, but even if it's just a hundred people, they need you, right? So how do you make sure what, what comes out of your mouth is actually what that person over there that needs you needs to hear in order to show up at your doorstep? That's all. But guess what? We denigrate ourselves. We come up with excuses. We Maybe we over-aggrandize what we do. And now we've got all these people who are coming who don't need our gifts. It's a mismatch. So how do we get that to be just right? Just the right amount of talk, enough so that that gift gets to the right person. That's Ghost Market. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. That'd be helpful with dating too, I would think. Yes, very much. 
You know, I mean, talk about marketing. What's a first date? It's a marketing. Yes. I mean, think about all the people that go on their first date and talk about all their breakups. I mean, that's not a great strategy, right? For your first date. (laughs) (laughs) So you want to be able to get cut to the chase. What is it that that person needs to know about you to say, hey, is this the right person for me to spend time with? And, And do you know it well enough yourself? Yeah. That you can speak it. There you go. Definitely, Michael. That's it. Yes. That's often a bigger question. One of the things we do in stage one of alchemy is after you work on your fears, the next question is, what do you really want? You'd think that would be an easy question, but nope, not an easy question. (laughs) Really hard because I tell people you have to put aside your children, put aside your spouse, put aside your boss or whatever career your clients or you have to like not think about any of them and allow your spirit to kind of filter in and and receive. It's like the poem the 13 appearances. I don't know if you know that poem, but Elizabeth Rochard de la Vallée and Pierre Claude Lar, they wrote a translation in their book Rooting Shen. Rooting Spirit. Reading Spirit, I think it's is the title. And so the 13 appearances is when something takes charge of the being, we speak of the heart. And so what's happening is the breath expands, something comes down, and there's life as part of the poem. It's this whole process of how we as humans emerge into beingness and then day-to-day how we actually do things. And that poem is just about how we can receive this, what do I really want? Answer. It has to come from beyond us somehow. That big Shen has to inform it a little bit. So you have to find a way to let that happen. So after the fear, you've got capacity to to work with that some. Yeah. Because you can't answer that question if you're terrified. Nope. You can't. Well, it's hard enough question to answer even if you aren't terrified, it sounds like. I'm just thinking about it. You just asked it. And my immediate response without even thinking, you were saying it should be easy. And I'm like, yep, nope. I didn't even think about it. Right? It's, it, yeah, it's just that uh, slippery in a sense. So, so talk to us a little bit more about getting your arms around what you want. Right. Well, one of the things that I love is to do the treatments the actual points, because I think sometimes, again, that human mind, not monkey mind, gets in the way. And we're talking REN 23 here. Actually, before that, no, kidney 23 was the one that I talked about earlier. Before we do the Big Shen kidney 23 point, we started with kidney 21. Now we go to kidney 19, Gin Metropolis. And the reason that we go there is we want to kind of go on retreat to ask that question. That question requires some quietude. Yin Metropolis is away from the city, away from all the hubbub. So you have to meditate to get the answer to that question. So we actually have a recorded meditation in our, in our website, Alchemy Learning Center. And, and the idea, and you don't need to listen to me to do it, but if you, you know, just want a little guidance, there's, to sit and to contemplate that while even working on kidney 19. Again, vibrating, all alchemy is a vibrational technique. 
And you can ask yourself, all right, what do I really want in a deep meditative state? You know, you get into that meditative state and then you try not to let your human mind answer that. See if your Shen can answer that. And then what bubbles up or what filters down, however you look at it, it's coming from beyond that human mind. And that's how you answer it. What bubbles up or filters down. That's so well spoken. Because heaven comes down, the breaths expand, and there is life. Okay. I want to finish up just so we can have a sense of completion here. Because we could go on for a long time with this ghost treatment. And it sounds like a ghost treatment does go on for a long time. And I'm suspecting probably multiple sessions. Yes. Um, I, I tend to do them uh, once, no more than once every six months, unless I'm doing one over a long period of time. But if I do, and I like to let them kind of do their work, uh, it takes about three months for someone's habits of life to start to go, wait, I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, see how they digest it. Yeah, I like to, especially when I do a long session, I don't do them again for a while. I give it time. So you'll do a number of points. You give people an opportunity to tell their story and listen to themselves, I suspect, in a way that maybe they don't usually listen. Yes, and I I will say that the art form of this over time is how do I talk to a person in a way that helps their mind kind of look at it from 180 degrees spin around and like maybe reframe what happened to them without inserting myself in the treatment. Oh boy. Yeah. I have people err on the side of not talking too much in the beginning because you can make mistakes and you can insert yourself in the treatment. And now the treatment is, uh, it's going the wrong direction and you did that. So in the beginning, it's really deep listening to guidance. Again, you're the, the instrument of the divine. So you have to really check with yourself. If you have a question in your head, you want to ask, I say, wait, wait a couple minutes. Is it still needing to be asked, still needing to be asked. Is it coming from your human mind, not monkey mind, or is it coming from higher guidance? And if it's still there, you probably need to ask it. And then you ask it and you learn, you learn, oh, wait, that really derailed where we're headed. And that was just my human mind doing its thing. Or, oh my God, look at that just changed everything that opened it up. We got the big aha moment, like everything shifted and then you go, oh, okay, that's me connecting with the instrument of the divine idea. That totally makes sense for me. I often hear people talk about, well, I do this treatment and I use my intention. And I always get nervous when I hear people say that for this exact reason. They've got this idea or this question or they think they know how it's supposed to go or just that their own intention is going to be able to make a shift for the person. My experience is that doesn't work very well. Well, I have to say, I have a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in, in getting to the point of doing this because I didn't have a lot of mentorship in the beginning. And I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I showed up at treatments with big intentions and that messed it up so badly. Some of my treatments were 12 hours long in the very beginning and I was crazy enough. And then you were exhausted at the end. 
and the patient might have been muddled. I know. So it's not a good thing. So why did that happen? Because I came in with this intention and I wasn't really listening. I wasn't really being fully present. And that I had to unlearn big time. I hear you. You are reflecting back my own experience to myself with this. And, uh, and the thing about if you've got a question, like, should I ask this? Should I ask it? I, I, mean, I had this happen just a week ago. Yeah. Where, where something came up and it's like, oh, I got this question. I think this will be illuminating for her. And then I'm like, mm, Michael, that might be your own thing. Right. Just hold that. And, you know, and then it came around again. And one of those experiences where eventually I did ask and it was like, yep, you were wrong. You should have just shut up. I should have just, I should have kept it and held it. There is sometimes, many times, like a ridiculous amount of times, if I'm paying attention, that the question is actually somewhat useful, but not when I ask it aloud. If I simply ask it and hold that space of that, if it is something that connects with them, they will talk about it. And if it's not, they just, you know, no harm, no foul. It just, it just goes by like, uh, you know, they just don't notice it. Well, it's the difference between your learning and their learning. We say when you do alchemy, the practitioner also evolves as well as the person on the table. And if you're doing a long session like what we're doing, if you haven't changed at the end of it, then you probably didn't do it successfully it's so impactful. So you, I always call it the fast track to personal evolution or transformation because you transform every time you do one of these sessions. So what, what's happening is that sometimes those questions are your transformational process. And, and it's not important to them right now. Maybe in a year or five years or a day, that question is going to come back and it needs to be asked. And so telling the difference, I love when we make mistakes. I love it because we get to learn so well when we're in sync with that and when we're not. So I, I make mistakes even now. I, I have a lot of people shadowing my treatments now in the clinic. So they, I'm like, look, you got to see me mess up today. I got a big fat no. I had a person um, who came who had a lot of trauma being sent away as a kid for being a bad kid, you know, one of these like outward boundy kind of things. And, but, but really severe. And they did a lot of psychological stuff with them. So they had to look in each other's eyes and they had to do who knows what, but she just had a lot of trauma. So when I looked in her eyes, that triggered her. So everyone got to see a big no, like to something really innocent. Like, how would I know that? Right. How would I know that? So I said, hey, let's look in each other's eyes. And that often opens the heart and people can talk a little more. So instead, we got to, I said, oh, once I understood the situation, I said, hey, let's look together out the window. She happened to be metal. And she, so metal people like to sit side by side and sort of commune and be in the cosmic chi together. Maybe look out a window. And once we did that, it changed everything. She was able to do the work. She was able to move forward. She got a little healing from me triggering her. And so we had to kind of like really shuffle it up. So it's okay to make a mistake. Totally okay. Well, I think it's partly, you could say it's partly how we learn, but it's also just a piece of the process. 
we don't completely understand who our patients are. We're in the process of discovering who they are, as we're also in the process of discovering who we are, as we're also in the process of discovering who we are with them, as they're discovering who, who they are. It, it's a constant calibration, I think is, is a helpful word. It's a constant calibration, recalibration. And the more experience we have, hopefully, the sooner we recognize, oh, yeah, this, no, looking in their eyes isn't it. Looking with, together, oh, there we go. This happens all the time. For sure, we make big honking mistakes. But sometimes we're just a little off, just a, a slight course correction. Yeah, exactly. I love, I always quote Byron Katie. She said that when she first heard the word namaste, someone was you know, bowing to her saying namaste and she heard no mistake. And she decided that, that that was some big spiritual like word, right? No mistake, no mistake. And I teach, there are no mistakes. Like truly I needed to trigger her as part of the way to call up the trauma and then to help in that moment, find a way together to heal it. And it's like, it gives you chills, right? It's like, oh yes, that's it. So I made this very innocent, quote unquote, what looks like a mistake, but really namaste, no mistake, right? It had to happen like that. And to sit in the trust as a practitioner that even the things that don't look pretty, they might need to happen. And that together you're really holding that person and saying, hey, I'm not perfect. I am so sorry. I didn't mean that. And that's part of the healing too. Cause we we're we're all going to be encountering people who are different than us all the time. And, and that's part of the trauma and the healing. And I think we also often hold ourselves to this incredibly high standard of, I can't make mistakes. And this person is in my office because those other idiot practitioners that they saw made mistakes. And so it's upon me now to not make, I mean, we can, I mean, I know for myself, I've, I've really put myself in a really tight spot without much room to maneuver because I have to get it right. I'm not saying we should be careless. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, yeah, all along we're learning something. Did that land? Did it not land? How did it land? I meant it like this. They took it like that. Oh, it's like prescribing herbs and, and they come back and they go, yeah, I, I was, I had headaches and I was nauseous. Oh, okay. Well, if those herbs did that, then it might mean this other thing. And we can do this with our communication. Yeah. Getting out of the doctor mindset in alchemical Chinese medicine, first of all, to see the person walking in as already perfect is a huge shift. It's a paradigm shift. We we were taught to see them as ill and that they're coming to us to fix them. And instead they're already walking in as perfect and you're facilitating them seeing their own perfection. That's alchemy. Yeah. I, I, I have a little trouble with that one. I get it. I've heard that. And I get it that we are where we are and things are as they are. I think it was, T.G. Suzuki or someone who said, yeah, you're perfect, but you could uh, you could use a little improvement. Yes. Well, here's the thing. If you're unwell, right, that's going to limit your ability to see perfection in yourself for sure. So you have to address that. You have to address that. And what can bring about a mindset of health in a person who's not well? And that's our job. 
Yeah, you know, we have this we have this fantastic idea from Chinese philosophy and in Chinese medicine of the zheng qi, right? That qi which is upright, everything going well. It's just it's it's fine. It's the qi that's fine, and we all have it. We might not be as attached to it. It may not be running through us in the ways that that would be most optimal, but it's there. It's the capacity is there. So I can get that as a kind of perfection, but for sure when people come through our door, they're not hitting on all cylinders. They wouldn't be walking through our door. And certainly me as a practitioner, I know that there are strengths I have, there are weaknesses I have, and then there's just a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. Yeah, and exactly. So if someone is coming in in that state, then you, you're not bringing that alchemy mindset to it yet. They may be future needing more of that idea of perfection, but like, let's say someone comes in and they need the ghost points. So let's just go with that Chinese medicine idea of possession, gui. Let's say that whatever you think is true, but let's just call it a gui. They're possessed, right? Well, that's a state of inauthentic qi or shui qi, as opposed to the zhang qi, which is authentic, right? So they don't have true qi. There's still somewhere deep down there's perfection, but there's something masking that intensely, right? So you can't get through to them. Maybe even the needles pop out. Like it could be really severe, right? So there's treatments for that. There's, and I would call all of those treatments alchemical treatments, honestly, if you're working with Gui. Well, I think what you're what you're describing here, you talked about it earlier, where people have a trauma. They get stuck in whatever energy that they pulled up to deal with that trauma. And and now they're walking in with that to get that resolved. Yeah. And they're not themselves. So we don't even have to think of it as another entity. It's just them not being themselves. So that they're haunted by their previous solution. Exactly. And that's Shui Chi, evil Chi, perverse Chi, inauthentic Chi. I just call it not true. Unhelpful Chi. I hate calling it evil chi. I hate that. That's a horrible translation. I hate that. It, it's really bothersome. I, I'm, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna start calling it unhelpful chi. Unhelpful. Perfect. Or unskilled chi. It's unskilled chi. <laughs> yes. I just call it not true chi. Whereas your true chi is the chi that we want you to circulate through you, yourself, and you be in total charge of yourself. That's true chi. All right. Wow. Well. This has been quite a conversation. I agree. Thank you. Anything else? And I suspect there's a lot more to talk about with alchemy, so we may have to come back another time and do that. But anything else that needs to be said at this moment, since we've been rattling on about ghost points, anything else to say about this before uh, we wind it down for the day? Well, I think about it from the practitioner point of view, since that's most of your audience, is I think people sometimes really can't wrap their heads around what I'm talking about. So I like to just make it really simple for a practitioner. You know, it's like alchemy can be a part of your everyday work. It doesn't have to be four to six hours. It's definitely a mindset where you're working on a level of is this person inviting transformation of some type or are they trying to go back to a previous state where they were happy and they don't want to change? And both are wonderful and acceptable and you don't have to have a bias one way or the other. Ideally, as a practitioner, you're going to see that. You, you develop the skill to see what they're asking the universe 
to deliver to them. Change, moving forward, a question of, is there more to life than this? That's alchemy. If they're saying, hey, I just want to get back to where I was, that's not alchemy. That's, you know, you doing the primary channels maybe, or maybe the divergent channels if you're using the five channel system or the eight extraordinary vessels. You know, maybe you're trying to rectify something that happened in their genetics with the eight extraordinary vessels. These are all things that are kind of like not asking new life perspectives. They're, they're trying to kind of stabilize and just be in that place that they're comfortable and no judgment. Totally cool. Not everyone needs to, to be an alchemist, but an alchemist is someone who's neither a saint or a hero. A hero wants to really like save the world. And a saint wants to say, Hey, the world is what it is. And we just have to learn how to live with it. And an alchemist mediates both of those. They're in the middle somewhere. And, you know, as a practitioner, you can ask yourself, am I the hero? You know, am I rescuing my patients or am I the saint teaching them how to like, you know, just harmonize, harmonize, harmonize or transform. That would be the alchemist. So I, just to give some people like perspective on, you know, what, what kind of practitioner they are now and is that what they want to be practicing? All right. And one more thing to say about that, I think. Give me just a second. When I hear you talk about it this way, the, it sounds like it is incumbent upon us to be able to hear what the patient is asking for. Help me get back to a particular state so I can just do that. Or help me get to some other place that, that's dramatically different. Because it's not up to us to put on them what we think is good for them. That's usually not so helpful. Exactly. And to know our biases, you know, I mean, uh, we probably have a strong bias to hero, saint, or alchemist. Like, who are we? And it's okay to know that you enjoy doing one of those three things. And that's the people you want to, again, rent 24, ghost market. You want to market to the people who are looking for the sainthood in life, potentially. Or you want to market to the people who need to be saved and be the hero. You know, or you like me, you want to bring in the people who are looking for transformation. Know what you're here to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Hey, I'll put this on the show notes, but real quick, if people wanted to find you online, where would they go? They can go to the Alchemy Learning Center for all of our classes or the inspiredactionpodcast.com. Inspired Action Podcast, knowing where your next footstep is. Yes. And so we we have both of those. So And uh, and we are starting a, a new apprenticeship this fall. So if you want to read about that, you can go to alchemylearningcenter.com. All right. Lita Herman, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Michael. It's such a pleasure. When I was younger, I was enamored with the idea of transformation. I suspect it in large part stemmed from being moderately clueless about getting along with others, wanting to feel more capable in the world and clumsy in acquiring that capacity. I imagined 
transformation to be a magical thing and that it would give me a kind of spiritual bypass on essential changes that I needed to make on my own life. It was only later that I began to realize that transformation was not without side effects, not without difficulties and discomfort in the process of growing beyond unexamined perspectives that in some ways were protective, but it kept me rooted in my self-induced limitations and faulty ideas about the world. These days, I think it's wise to use caution when the word, air quotes here, transformation is bandied about. Because transformation, like the hero's journey, is just asking for trouble. Not that that's a bad thing, but transformation, it also means loss. It involves coming to terms with how you've been complicit in creating your situation and circumstances and recognizing where you've been mistaken and how that's affected you and others. Transformation is not a free ticket to a better life, which is why I appreciate Lita's perspective that alchemy, it's a mindset. In some ways, it's not what you do, but who you are. It's a set of tools, but beyond that, a state of mind that allows for knowing what tool to use and in what way. My younger self wanted an express lane to transverse the difficult territory of meaningful change. More present-day me? Hmm. Alchemical mindset. That seems about right. So as to have the capacity to be able to more slowly and inquisitively investigate the terrain. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.